mind taking out your Bibles? Uh, if you can, that would be great. Uh, we're going to take a, a new chapter on in chapter 24 of Genesis, chapter 24 of Genesis, verses 1 through 14. I'm reading from the ESV version. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord was, had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had changed, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see, it, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give you this land. He said, he will send the angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia of the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city of the well, outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go up to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the women of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your son, servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us go to the Lord in prayer at this time. Holy Father, what a joy, a privilege we have to gather in your name. We understand that our gathering cost you precious blood, violent suffering, death. Too often we treat this gathering as a mere preference or convenience. We ask that you forgive us for our apathy and indifference for our misplaced affections. In similar fashion, this gift of prayer is ours through Christ's atonement. 
that we often neglect and choose instead to rely upon our own efforts and desires. Lord, we pray that you would expose and destroy our selfish attitudes and desires and actions. Fill us with an unbridled passion for you, to worship you with all that we are. Father, I pray that you will not leave this church to its own ways, that you would confront and convict us, that you would shatter the idols in our lives and free us to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Use us in a powerful and eternally significant way in this community and beyond, even throughout our world. Lord, don't permit us to be complacent or enamored with this fallen world. Lord, we're mindful today, as has already been mentioned, of those who are serving in difficult places. People that you have not allowed to be content in comfortable settings like that in which we reside. But Lord, have um, sensed your calling, your impetus to move into the hard and difficult places in the far reaches of this world. We pray for them. We pray that, Lord, you would um, encourage them even as we are gathered here praying now. That your spirit would reach out and touch their hearts, their souls in a very special and encouraging way. Uplift them. Lord, as we're going through uh, this time of a special season of uh, holidays and family gatherings and traditions and uh, it's a very difficult and lonely time uh, in their lives. So we pray that, Lord, they would be on our minds, in our hearts, and on our lips regularly, especially during these days. Lord, we are emphasizing our support and encouragement to them through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And while our offering, Lord, is modest, our goal is modest, we pray that you would bless this offering, that you would multiply it, that you would make us generous stewards of all that you've entrusted to us, that our gifts would be multiplied, they would spread far and deeply around this world. They need resources. They also need to know that we care and that we're in this with them. We pray, especially today, for Alex and Amanda and Josie and Allie, who are serving you in Central Asia. We give uh, pray that you would give them the aptitudes and strengths and disciplines they need to learn language. We pray that you would empower them to use their gifts to serve in the local language church there. Arrange and use them, uh, Lord, with people in their daily life uh, to share Christ. Enable them to meet people to get to know people. We pray that you would remove barriers, that there would be people who would embrace their friendship and listen to all that they have to share. Lord, especially is that true for Amanda, who's discipling her language tutor at this time, who has professed Christ. We pray that you would equip her and strengthen her for this great challenge and that she would see fruit for her labor. We pray for Hope Church there that you would provide unity and servant hearts and growth and evangelistic zeal for its members and for wisdom, Lord, for its only pastor and elder. And we pray that you would raise up godly men to lead this church in the years to come. 
Lord, we pray for um, the team there, uh, for Alex and Josie, uh, uh, Alex and Amanda, and as well for uh, for Garrett and Lee and others as they have to make application for uh, having their residency renewed. We know that's stressful. We just pray that you go before them, that you would provide the encounters that they need, the favorable responses that they need to be able to continue to stay and uh, be invested in the long term uh, in Central Asia for your glory. Lord, I pray that they would see you and recognize your power working on their behalf. Give them contentment and joy for living in those hard places. They acknowledge that it's easy to, uh, to grow um, covetousness. Lord, for those who live in places near family like we do, and that it's easy to uh, begin to complain. So we pray for their protection from the enemy and that, uh, Lord, their contentment might uh, grow and be fruitful. So we pray that, Lord, you would uh, bless them, that you would uh, encourage them as they love, train, and disciple their children. And we pray for Josie and Allie that they might come to know you at a very early age, that even now you're preparing them. So give Alex and Amanda wisdom, grace, love, and patience in their home. Bless their marriage. Protect them from the enemy's temptations. We ask all of this for your glory, for their sake. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I trust that you've had a blessed week and uh, a good time of intentionally being engaged in thanksgiving for all that the Lord has done for you. Uh, this year, I uh, read a book. I read lots of books, and sometimes I don't know why I choose certain books, but I just do. And this year, I've read a book on uh, the six wives of Henry VIII. I know, I know. I thought the same thing as I began reading it. But it turned out to be a very intriguing read. And you know, Henry VIII is best known for taking up a succession of wives while also angering the Catholic Church over those marriages, particularly his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. She was his first wife and became pregnant multiple times, but only had one surviving daughter. And in order to justify annulling this marriage, because having a male uh, descendant, a male heir, was critically important in his thinking and those around him, so he arranged to try to annul the marriage. So he alleged lots of uh, premarital promiscuity on her uh, behalf, tried to sully her name, and uh, did that pretty successfully. But he angered the Pope and the Catholic Church, and it led to uh, a fissure there. The, uh, the church in England uh, separated from the Catholic Church and formed what we know today as the Church of England. So he married six wives, one after the other. Two of those wives died by execution, while another died due to infection from childbirth. The history of King Henry's wives is a tragic story. His consuming uh, passion, his consuming objective to gain a male heir um, for his legacy and his kingdom was something that actually led to him leading a rather miserable life and uh, a failed reputation. 
Last week we saw Abraham bury his wife, his wife Sarah, who was 127 years of age, Abraham being 137 at the time, and we speculated that they probably had been married a century uh, or more, a long time they had been married. And it uh, was heartbreaking, I'm sure, for Abraham and for Isaac, his one son. Abraham had cause to reflect upon his own mortality as he buried his wife because he had this promise from God, this promise that God was going to bless and multiply him into a great kingdom that would bless all nations. And so to watch his wife buried and to realize that you know, or to question, what's going to happen now? I'm nearing death. If I'm burying Sarah. It's a natural progression. I'm not long for this world. And what's going to happen to the promise? Well, the promise is ready to be transferred. It's ready to transition to Isaac. But there's a problem here. Isaac's nearly 40 years old, and Isaac is yet not married. And without marriage, there's going to be no children. So the last thing in order for Abraham is to make sure that Isaac is married and that the promise can continue to move through Isaac and climax in the seed of the woman who would bring redemption and blessing to all the world. So this passage, this 24th passage, chapter of Genesis, is about Abraham's um, move to try to procure a wife for, uh, for Isaac, his son. Uh, to continue to keep things going. And so I, wanted, I began with this thing about Henry VIII because he spent so much time with self-effort, with his own strength, trying to manipulate and to produce an heir to keep his legacy and his kingdom going. And with Abraham, we see him make a decision, take a step to do something similar, but the two are drastically different. King Henry continued to do things in his own strength, in his own wisdom, his own ingenuity, whereas Abraham uh, tends to trust God. He himself was not involved in this process, nor did he allow Isaac to be involved in the process. He called out a servant and sent him. So I want to point out five or six things to you in this long passage that we didn't read all of. I encourage you to read it. In your time, it's an incredible story, a great story, and an important story. Taking up 67 verses, you can rest assured it had its importance as Moses was penning the Pentateuch for the nation of Israel at that time. So let's begin thinking about, first of all, we have a big assignment uh, on the docket. Abraham is old. He's about to die. Sarah's dead, he's soon to follow. God has blessed him just as he promised he would. He's a prosperous man. One of the things as I read through this chapter several times that haunted me is that I kept reading about camels. Camels. Camels everywhere. And I thought, what's this? Is this story about a bride for Isaac or is it about camels? What all this talk about camels? And I counted them up. I forgot what it was. I want to say, you know, there were 18 or 20 references to camels. And so I said, what is this about? And then as I was reading one commentator or someone pointed this out, this was about the prosperity that God had afforded to Abraham. All these camels were an attestation to what God had done in Abraham's life. 
He sends 10 camels back with his servant to go searching for a wife for Isaac. He does that to carry all the gifts that he's sending, which again is a testimony to how God has blessed him, how God has done exactly what God promised to do in the beginning when he called him out. So he's prosperous. He's established in Canaan. He's established in the land that God has promised to him. He has a son, Isaac, but he has no wife for Isaac. So the promise appears to be teetering. And Abraham summons his longtime trusted servant, a person who's been a part of his household for a long time. We're not told how long. Some people want to call this person Eliezer, that we see the name uh, of Abraham's servant somewhere else, but there's nothing to really uh, affirm that that's true here. But this is a longtime servant in Abraham's house. So he has seen a lot. And he says, I want you to go to my country, to my kindred, and I want you to find a wife for my son, Isaac. Don't allow Isaac to marry any Canaanite women, and don't allow Isaac to get on a camel and go with you back to my land. The promise depends on the execution of this assignment. So the servant dutifully accepts the assignment and goes to work. He gathers the gifts, he loads the camels, and he goes. And it's interesting. This is a 550-mile journey that he takes, and basically the journey to Nahor and the journey back to Hebron basically are summarized in a couple of statements. Nothing is said about the journey itself. So we have a big assignment before us, and then we see a providential meeting. Now, some think providential means accidental, that it means coincidental, that it means lucky, or that it implies fate, trusting fate for something. It actually means something that is divinely planned and orchestrated. God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, He is omnipresent, and so there is nothing outside of His purview. He knows all, He plans all, and He executes all according to His purpose. C.H. Spurgeon described it this way. He said, whatever is must be. This is how people define fate. Fate is whatever is must be. But there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says, whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some uh, one great end. Fate does not say that. Fate simply says that the thing must be. Providence says, God moves the wheels along and there they are. So it's all according to God's design, God's desire for God's glory, always. This is an important thing for us to understand. And that's basically what this entire chapter is about. So the servant arrives in Nahor. He positioned himself at the city's well. This was a strategic move on his part. If you, wanted to, if you wanted to check out and see who the women were living in this city, who was married and who wasn't, the very place where you were going to get the opportunity to do this would be at the well because they made two trips each day 
to the well. They would come in the mornings and get water. They would come in the evenings and get water. And it was a big deal. So just camping out, he has the camels sit down in anticipation. And then he prays. He doesn't trust his own wisdom and his own ingenuity. He prays, and he prays specifically. He prays for God to answer clearly, and he does so expectantly. He says, let, let a young woman that you have identified that is to be Isaac's wife come out to get water. Let her provide water for me, and not only for me, but to be willing to serve my camels as well. Now, this is important. How much water can a camel drink? How much water can 10 camels drink? A lot, a lot. Now, you can do the math. I did a little bit of studying, and I want to say it's something like 32 gallons per camel that they can drink. That's a lot of water. And a gallon of water weighs something like eight pounds or something, okay? A little over eight pounds. So, what she volunteered to do was no, no small assignment. This was something that was uh, going to take a lot of work, a lot of effort. And this young girl says, oh, hey, yes, here, have some water out of my jar. And while you're doing that, are these your camels? I'll water your camels as well. And so she goes about the task. How long did it take to draw those 320 gallons of water to gas up those camels for the return trip or for wherever else he was going. Must have taken a while. And the whole time, he's sitting there observing her, watching her, maybe interacting with her to a certain degree. This servant was trusting in God, and God answered his prayer. Now, why does Moses spend so much time in this book, Genesis, why does he invest this long chapter of 67 verses recounting this story, not once but a couple of times, which tells us that he put a lot of emphasis on it? Why did he do this? Well, I think it's pretty clear. Moses is teaching Israel that it owed its existence to Yahweh's providence. That Yahweh's the one who's pulling the strings. Yahweh's the one who's making the way. Yahweh's the one who's bringing things together in an explicable fashion that no other man, no man can do. Why would this be important to them? Well, now just think about it. Where are they? When Moses wrote this, where are they? They're out in the wilderness. They've been out there in the midst of some whole generation, a 40-year stint out in the wilderness, waiting on what? Waiting to enter the promised land, waiting to enter the place that God had prepared, was preparing for them. And we know that while they were in the wilderness, they faced all kinds of incredible challenges. They had challenges about eating manna every day. You would too if it was served for 40 years every day. You'd get tired of it. Just think about your favorite restaurant right now, and you think, I never get enough there. I could just go there and eat and eat and eat and eat. Well, let's do that for 365 days straight, all three meals that you have each day for 40 years. You'd get tired of it, wouldn't you? They got tired. They grumbled. 
We know they ran out of water. They grumbled about not having water. They went on and on and on with all these challenges. But those challenges were nothing compared to what was getting ready to take place when they crossed the Jordan and went into the promised land. They were going to face giants in the land. They were going to have to take up arms and, and take the land. Moses is trying to prepare them, to let them know, look, what God has promised, what God has told you is yours, he's going to bring about. He is a providential God. You need to get this through your head. We go back and look, you don't even exist unless he handles this situation with Isaac, unless he provides this wife for Isaac. This is the kind of God the same God who's focused on birds and lilies of the field and hairs on your head is the same God that's going to provide for you as you move forward in obedience to Him. Their future did not depend on Moses or on Joshua or even themselves. It depended on Yahweh, didn't it? What a great message for you and for me. God's always paying attention. He's always accomplishing His plans. He's always acting providentially. He's always working to accomplish His purpose, His plan, in His way, for His glory. When things in your life seem too difficult to bear, Yahweh says, watch this. When Things appear nonsensical. Yahweh says, I alone will make sense of this. And when things appear to be unimportant, He is the God who says, I am concerned about the birds and the lilies and the hairs on your head. I'm concerned about it all. And I have the power and the ability to make sure that it all functions and, and comes together as I prescribe it, as I desire it. It's important for us here at Milton Community Church, right? We exist. Why? Well, we have a story to tell. We tell the story about how we came together, crab apple and grace, how we merged together. And, you know, and sometimes it's real easy when we're sitting around talking to lose sight of exactly what happened. It wasn't me. It wasn't Luke. It wasn't Nathan. It wasn't anybody. It was God who formed this union. It was God who prepared everything and brought it all to pass just when He did. This is His work, not ours, right? It's His work according to His providence. This is comforting and encouraging to me. It tells me that God has gospel work in store for this community, that He's gone to great trouble, great work, great effort, to prepare a gospel-preaching, gospel-honoring, gospel-teaching church here in this community of great affluence and indifference to the things of God. He cares for the countless people who live, work, play, go to school here. He's formed and prepared Milton Community Church for just such a time as this. When we face challenges, when we face difficulties, God has not failed or checked out. He's still at the helm. He's still providentially working to fulfill His gospel work here. Even when it looks like we're losing. We can't lose because God is on our side, right? It's His work. He never starts anything that He hasn't already completed. It may not always match what you or I would design or expect, 
but it is God's work in His way for His glory. God arranged this meeting between Abraham's servant and Rebekah. He does it for His own glory, which is evidenced by the servant's response. His approach is measured, it's joyful, it's grateful. Who are you, young lady? And do you have room for me in your house? He knows this is, this, she's, she's her, right? Did I, did I say that correctly? She's her. It's not he's him, but she's her. She's the one. God's made it clear. God's got this under control. So we have this providential meeting that God has arranged. Then we move into a life-changing proposal. Hospitality is an important matter in cultures, particularly outside the United States. It may still be here, but it's often, it's often something that we don't think much about uh, these days. But in other places in the world, hospitality is very important. This servant explains who he is, why he has come to Naor, and this points us back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, where we have the account of Abraham being called out. Remember, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abraham left this place out of obedience to God. Now Abraham's servant is back because God has providentially and faithfully blessed him and led him back there. For what? To bring forth a wife for his son Isaac. The camels, the gifts, the ring, the bracelets are all indicative of God's prosperity received from the hand of God in answer to his promise. And then he begins. They bring him in and and have him sit down. We know you're hungry. You've been on a long journey. You've been eating food prepared over a campfire or dried uh, meat or something. So surely uh, a good meal will help you. And he says, look, before I can take a bite, I need to tell you about my master. Now just let that simmer there for a second. Let me, let me tell you about my master. Before I take any provision for my own well-being, you need to hear about my master. And so he tells them of the extraordinary gift that is Isaac, the sole heir of Abraham's estate. I imagine this resonated with, um, with her brother Laban, who was sitting there with dollar signs ringing up in his eyes. And the servant assures Rebekah's family that this, this is a moment this is a life-changing opportunity before her. Abraham's household is one of benevolence, kindness, generosity, and security. This family is characterized by courage, a la his going to retrieve Lot when he was abducted. It's faith and worship. This is bigger than just a marriage proposal. This is God's eternal plan of redemption. And so he retells the incident at the well, just to make the point to all the family, this is how I ended up here. Here's what I prayed. Here's what happened. Here's why I'm here. God's orchestrated all of it. God's providence is at work. You need to understand this, he says. The decisive moment is put to Laban and Bethuel. Will they treat it openly and honestly, or will they close the door and reject it. 
So then we move into the fourth stage here, which is a clear agreement between the parties involved. Rebecca's family is in awe. When they heard him tell the account of how God has provided, how God has brought him, how God has blessed Abraham, it left them speechless. They were in awe of what they had heard. There was no doubt that this was divine work. They couldn't speak. They said, this thing surely has come from the Lord. And if that is true, how can we say yes or no? It simply is. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And when he heard this, the servant bowed himself before the Lord. And he prayed and worshipped him. And then he delivered the dowry. He gave the dowry. This encouraged Laban greatly. Jewelry of silver and gold, garments, costly ornaments, and they celebrated throughout the night. It was an incredible, glorious thing. Reminds us of another glorious dowry that was paid, doesn't it? First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus paid the debt you and I owed for our sin. He paid our dowry that we might become his bride. The servant was up the next morning and ready to start home. His job's done, right? Now he just needs to get her home. He needs to get her back and introduce her to Isaac. He's found God's appointed wife to continue the promised line. But Laban and his family wavered. Uh, you know, probably somewhere in the morning, Laban woke up and thought, you know, I'm missing a great opportunity here. This man's very wealthy. And this is a very generous, a very generous dowry he's provided, but maybe we could get some more. He says, let her abide with us a while. Literally, it's an open-ended abiding. He says, maybe 10 days, maybe 100 days, maybe 1,000 days. We'll let you know when she's ready to come. Well, the servant's not having any of that, right? He clarifies, this is an urgent undertaking. Let us return now. I'm on assignment I found this woman. She is the Lord's appointed one. Let us return quickly to our master. Well, let's let the girl decide what she will do. Will you go with this man now and be a wife to this one that you've never met? I think they were banking on her saying, well, I need to get used to the idea. But she didn't because why? God's at work. And she says, I will go. I will go right now. Right now. Verses 59 through 65 show us a hope-filled return. They blessed her, hoping she would multiply greatly, have many, many children. The more children you have, the more prosperity this guy gets, then it's probably going to help us too. Sorry to be cynical, but Laban merits our cynicism, doesn't he? Rebecca and her young women mounted the camels for the return trip. As I told you, this journey was 550 miles. We get one verse that says 
and they mounted and they went back. And then the next thing you know, they're meeting Isaac. And so, you know, I can't help but think. Again, I start doing the math and I'm thinking, how far does a camel travel every day? Well, maybe 18 miles, maybe 20 miles. That's about average if you're transporting a party and all the stuff that goes with it. So this is about a month-long journey. It takes about a month. Lots of hours on camel time. I've ridden a camel. Mark, you've ridden a camel. I can't imagine spending 30 days on a camel. But they're doing this day after day after day. There's got to be time for conversation, doesn't there? She had a million questions. And so she's asking the servant, what about him? What what color hair does he have? What what does his beard look like? What does he do? Do we think the servant just said, can't tell you all that. That's on a need-to-know basis. You'll find out when you get there. I don't think so. I think this was a, this was a hope-filled conversation all the way back. Verse 10 says, he arose, went to Mesopotamia. Verse 61 says, thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Rebekah had all these questions. And the servant, I think, was happy to share. He told her about Abraham and Sarah leaving Naor, Haran, and going to the promised land. He told her about the journey from Haran to Hebron. He told her about their challenges of trusting and obeying God and how hard it was and difficult it was when they continued to age and there was no child. He told her about all those years waiting for Isaac. He told her about the angels visiting on that day a year before Isaac came and telling them that they were getting ready to have a child and that Sarah was 89 and Abraham 99. And how Sarah laughed in disbelief. And he told her about that year with an 89, 90-year-old woman who was pregnant expecting her first child. He told her about the day that Isaac was born and the immeasurable joy that flooded the household and all those servants He told her about Isaac as a young boy, as a teenager, and now a grown man. He told her how he cared for his mother and father. He told her how he honored them through his work and service. He told her how he watched and tended the flocks and herds and how he treated the servants with kindness and generosity. He told her about Sarah's death and Abraham and Isaac's grief. Over many miles and countless hours, her heart began to be animated with something other than just a head knowledge about this young man. Though they'd never met, she began to know him. She began to be drawn to him. She began to appreciate him. She even began to like him. She began to love him. And she began to long to see him and to meet him. Her expectations were growing at a fever pitch. It was a long journey, but it was a hope-filled journey to her destiny. Then one day, Rebecca lifted up her eyes. This is good. One day, all that long journey, eating all that dust, listening to those camels murmur and grumble, 
Finally, one day she lifted up her eyes and she saw a figure on the horizon. And she said, sir, sir, can you tell me who, who is that? Who is that man that seems to be coming in this direction? The servant said, and he began to smile. He said, oh, I know that man. <laughs> That's him. That's my master. He's coming. This is your bridegroom, Rebecca. He's coming. Rebecca covered her face and prepared to meet her bridegroom. Just as the church takes on her wedding garments in anticipation of the Lord's return to meet him. The servant then told Isaac everything. Every last detail. And the scripture, in an understated way, says, And Isaac took her as his wife. And he loved her. And he loved her. Rebecca points us to the church. Donald Barnhouse says she was thought of before she knew it and was chosen when she did not know of the existence of the bridegroom. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, says Ephesians 1.4. Rebecca's future husband passed through sacrifice and resurrection before she knew him. The messenger left home to find her while she was still ignorant of the future which had been planned for her. He brought her gifts and tokens of her future life and wooed her, not for himself, but for his absent master. And she obeyed the call to separation and departed on a pilgrimage that took her to the one who had loved her before she loved him. The Holy Spirit is seeking those whom God has known before the foundation of the world. He's wooing and calling his own. And he regenerates us and seals us for the master, for Christ. Regenerate believers are betrothed and pledged to Christ. And as we continue through this life, he prepares us for that day when we will see him face to face. For those who have turned from sin and self and have believed the gospel and put their trust in Christ alone, this will be a marvelous sight. A glorious sight beyond anything that we can ever think of or imagine. To gaze upon the face of the one who loved us enough to suffer and die that we could be forgiven and restored to a holy God. But for those who have remained entrenched in their own self-efforts and sin, for those who continually reject Christ as Savior and Lord, to see him face to face would be a terrible ordeal. It would be a frightening realization that they stand in shame before him. They will realize too late that God's righteous judgment is their destiny. The Holy Spirit, he's presently calling. He's calling to you to trust Christ alone. Will you go with this man now? Father, we thank you and bless you for who you are. Thank you for your glorious gospel for your incredible providence that gives us encouragement, security, confidence. What an incredible thing, Lord, for all of us here today. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, that one day 
at the trumpet sound, the scripture says he's going to appear. And he's going to gather all those who belong to him, whom he's known since before the foundation of the world unto himself. I pray for us this morning, those of us who are gathered here, who have heard this truth, that each of us, Lord, today can walk through this day with the utmost confidence that when he appears, we can hear the Spirit whisper in our ears, there is your bridegroom. There he is, our master. Make it so, Father. And for those who don't know you, I pray that today is the day that the Spirit's wooing and whispering achieves its purpose in bringing regeneration to bear upon that heart and that soul for your honor and for your glory. This we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.